We're going to be kind of continuing our, our study in the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, God's people are, are complaining because of their economic, social, and political lot. They've been restored back to Jerusalem. They've been in captivity for a long time, and they've been allowed to come back to their homeland. The temple has been re- rebuilt, restored, yet they're angry with God because things aren't going their way. They're poor, they're destitute, they're being picked on by their enemies. So they've been throwing a temper tantrum. They're hurting. And an infection of waywardness has taken root. And it's affected their, their worship and love for God. So God sends the prophet Malachi. The, the term Malachi, the name Malachi, it literally means messenger. My last name is Skimbri. Kimbri literally means, uh, in Maltese, lemon. So I'm, I'm <laughs> it's from, or from the Italian skimbro, which means mackerel. And so either I'm a dud or I'm fishy. Malachi means messenger. And through this prophet, God picks up his child. He looks him in the eye and he first tells them that he loves them. He connects before he corrects, which is advice for any parent to get down, to look your kid in the eye and say, I love you before we correct them. And they know that we love them. But as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, God has been now digging out sin in their life. And he first challenged the priests, the leaders, those who are in charge with worship because their sacrifices were second rate. They weren't giving God their best. And God's really challenging them on their their acts of worship and their relationship with him. That's been in chapter one and some of chapter two. In this section, the rest of chapter two, God turns his eyes to the community of God affected by the instructions of the priest because the priests were doing a bad job not only of giving second-rate sacrifices, they were not preaching God's word. They were not preaching God's commands. And so the community is a little bit messed up right now. And it's interesting to see as God turns his eyes to, to his people, to the community, what issue he addresses first. What issue he addresses first. Turn to Malachi 2. If you're wondering, why are we in the book of Malachi? Uh, Because it's the last book of the Old Testament, and there are 400 years, and then Jesus comes on the scene, which we celebrate with Christmas. And so this is the book before the Gospels. This is the last book of the Old Testament, and as we'll see next week in our family service, it really prepares us for the coming of Jesus. It really prepares us for the coming Savior. Savior. And so it, it's neat to kind of look at this book. It's not a book. Uh, it's, it's not a book, uh, some weird Old Testament book that, that we have a hard time understanding. It's very practical, and we've been learning that. But look at Malachi 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in the back. Somebody could get that for you. Uh, Malachi 2, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Malachi 2, look at verse 10. And so Malachi, again, is the book right before Matthew, right before the New Testament. Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Underline that, profaning the covenant of our fathers. So God is saying, I am your one father. I have created you and I have called you. You wouldn't be 
a nation without me. Your existence and unity is in me. I am one. Therefore, you should be one. Why are you not acting like you're one? Why are you faithless with one another? Why do you profane the covenant that I gave to your forefathers? God is saying, when I established my covenant with you through Moses, there were vertical responsibilities. God gave them commands as how to deal with, with him, how to love, follow, and worship him. But there were also horizontal responsibilities. God wants us to treat us one another in a certain way. And this is the same in the New Testament. When, when a Pharisee asked Jesus, what is the most important command? It's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. It's what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And God is saying to Israel at this time, it was no different in the Old Testament, love God, love others. He's saying when you fail to love others, you are profaning the covenant that I gave to your fathers. You're breaking that covenant. There are things happening in your community that weaken your faith and go against what I have set before you. And as we're going to see, it has a lot to do with marriage. Is it a lot to do with marriage? In chapters one and two, God's first concern is worship, their relationship with him. Now, God challenges their approach to the second most important relationship all of us will have. Nine out of 10 people will get married. So most of us in this room will get married. Who you choose as a spouse is the second most important relationship that you will choose. It's first about Jesus. That's the most important relationship. But he tackles the second here when he's talking to the community. Look at verse 11. Judah has been faithless. Judah is Israel. This is God's people. They've been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. I mean, this is, this is, heart, this is a very harsh language. Like, if you looked at your child and said, you committed an abomination. Yesterday, they'd be like, oh, man, what, what did I do? Did I, did I kill somebody? Or, uh, you know, did I do something very wrong? This, the, the root word of abomination means to, to hate or to abhorn or referred to activity that God viewed as detestable. God does not like this going on. So what were they doing? What were they doing that was so bad? Look at the rest of verse 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and underline this, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So God's people, God's community, the sons of God were marrying pagan women. And this was something that God prohibited. If we look at the covenant that he set before Moses. This was something that he did not want to see happen. Do not marry. Do not take for yourselves a pagan wife. And the question is, is like, well, why were they 
doing this if they knew God was against it. It was probably for personal gain. It was probably for personal gain. You see, when they came back to Jerusalem, when they rebuilt the temple, they weren't exactly well off. They were anything but well off. And a way to secure success and wealth and prestige was to marry into it. And so the sons of God were essentially looking for pagan sugar mamas. So some women to help them, you know, be secure, be safe and be wealthy. And so they were going against what God had set before them. And the question you have to ask, well, does this, this seems kind of discriminatory. It makes God seem, you know, like maybe racist a little bit. He only wants him to marry their own kind. And, and God isn't discriminatory. It's not about that. God is trying to protect Israel, his chosen people, from something. If you look at Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, you don't need to, cha- you don't need to uh, go there, but it says, you shall not intermarry with them, that being pagans, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. What God is saying is who we tie our lives to will inevitably affect where our worship goes. I'm going to say that again. Who we tie our lives to will inevitably affect where our worship goes. And God wants our worship. I talked about important relationships, second most important relationship. Your second most important relationship will always affect your first most important relationship. He takes marriage seriously because he takes idolatry seriously. So it makes sense when he cuts off whoever commits this sin. Even though they practice surface religiosity, their hearts are not with God, but somewhere else. So God's like, you then go ahead and and go somewhere else. And the question we have is, is this is, this is how God protected his covenant community then. Is it the same for us today? Like, is it wise for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? Can I, can I marry an unbeliever? And, and if you remember being single, and if you were a Christian when you were single, this was probably a real temptation. Now, can I marry somebody who does? I mean, what if they're, you know, what if, what if, what if they're really good looking? What if they're really nice and good moral people? We have the same morals. You know, what if they're really sweet? My family loves them and we really get along. We have the same sense of humor. We love the same music. We're in love, but they don't really have an interest in following, loving Jesus. Is, this, is it a wise thing to, to marry that person? You know, what's the big deal? What if they have spiritual potential? And what if I'm the one who could actually save them? What if God could work through me to save my, my non-Christian spouse? We, we had a term for this in college. It was the flirt to convert model of dating. We called it missionary dating. Oh man, if I just date them for a little bit, man, whoo, they'll come to know Jesus because they'll see that fail. It'll work out. I do not believe this approach is something to be taken by serious believers. It's not something a serious believer 
entertains. Now, if you have a coexist bumper or bumper sticker, you know, the bumper stickers that say coexist on your car, you may love the idea of people from different, different worldviews, people who hold mutually exclusive beliefs that don't necessarily agree. I mean, you may, you may applaud that and say, oh man, man, a Muslim and a Mormon, how beautiful would that be? You know, M&Ms, how cool would that be if they got together? What a picture of harmony and and, and coexisting together. And, And I'm not saying we can't all get along and be kind and respectful But if your faith is real, it is then the most fundamental aspect of who you are. I'm going to say that again. If your faith is real, it's real to you. It is the most fundamental aspect of who you are. It's the lens through which you perceive the world. It'll shape how you love, live, give, forgive. It'll shape how you raise your kids. It'll shape how you spend your money. It'll shape how you spend your free time. Why get married to someone who doesn't share what you hold most dear? A similar taste in music will not a marriage make. Just because you have the same sense of humor right now doesn't mean you will laugh at his jokes later. (laughs) But there are often times where you look at me (laughs) like I'm crazy. But the gospel is what stands. The gospel is what binds a marriage. What do you really have in common with somebody who doesn't share what you hold most dear? Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 16. He says, what harmony is there between Christian and Belial, which could be another term for Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God said, I will live in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Your second most important relationship will always affect your most important relationship. So marry someone who will direct you to Jesus, not somebody who will distract you from following Jesus. Guys, I've seen it over and over and over again. I have worked with young adults for most of my ministry, but they're, they're, they're nice, Larry, and they're good. They don't treat people poorly, but, but they don't love Jesus. Guys, it doesn't. It, it's, a, you're setting yourself up for a very long, very hard marriage if you stick together, and a lot of times it doesn't work. The highest divorce rate is when there is interfaith marriages going on. It's just hard. Like any loving father, God is concerned about who his children are marrying. and For covenant renewal to take place, for restoration and healing, for their hearts to turn back to God, their marriages must be in order. And because marriage is a big deal, he continues to challenge them on this topic. Look at verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. I love that. This is the second thing. He's like a list. Check. Number one, you're marrying pagan women. Stop it. Here's the second thing that you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by 
covenant. Here, here's the second thing you do, God says. You cry and moan because God does not accept your offerings. And you say, well, why? Why doesn't God accept my offerings? He says, because you're divorcing the wives of your youth. Now, wives of your youth, it implies that they have been married for a long time. So the wife that married you 20, 30 years ago, who's, who, who's with you when you were good looking and now that you're ugly, the one who's stayed with you the whole entire time, who, who gave you kids and who's, who you guys have experienced highs and lows, you know, that is the wife you are divorcing. And there's a good chance these Jewish men were abandoning their wives that they had been married to for a long time. For who? For pagan women. Nonetheless, God thinks marriage is important. Who you marry is important. Staying married is just as important. And here's why. When he talks about marriage, he uses covenantal language. Underline that term at the end of 14. Your wife by covenant. You've been faithless, though she is your companion, your partner, your ride or die, your boo as the kids call it. Is it bay? You're before anyone else. High school kids are looking at me like I'm old. I'm old. So, so, but your wife by covenant. Your wife by covenant. A covenant is different than a contract. And our world looks at marriage like, like a contract. A contractual marriage is between two people. A covenantal marriage is between three people. You, your spouse, and God, who witnesses, oversees, and ratifies that oath by covenant. A contractual marriage is about self-fulfillment. As long as my desires are fulfilled, as long as my will be done, will be good. A covenantal marriage is about pursuing God's will. It's not about my preferences. It's not about your preferences. It's about God's preferences, his desire for our lives. A contractual marriage is about negotiating terms. You do this, I do that. And as long as you do this and I do that, we'll be good. A covenantal marriage is about serving one another sacrificially. Just as Christ has sacrificially served each and every one of us. In a contractual marriage, the goal is to be happy. That's why you get married. I want to be happy. In a covenantal marriage, the goal is, is worship and sanctification, growing in Christ. That is the purpose of marriage. Covenantal marriage is also a physical tangible example of the covenantal relationship that God had with Israel in his people. Marriage language is used all throughout scripture to define God's relationship with his people. His people are the bride. He is the groom, the bridegroom, and he loves, cares for, perseveres, and is faithful to his people. It's the same for the church Today, Jesus is the bridegroom. We are, as the church, the bride. My daughter came home last week because they taught this in church. And they said, Daddy, are you married to Jesus? And they thought that was hilarious, that Daddy is married to Jesus. But yes, we collectively, men and women, are married to Jesus. 
Because through that covenant of blood, he has established a relationship with us, one that he cares for us, loves us, and, and pursues us. God will never forsake his bride, the church. He will never break the covenant he establishes. So for them to break this covenant, guys, think about this. Think about all the junk that's happening when they break this covenant. It was to sin against their wives. To break this covenant was to sin against their God involved in making this covenant. It defamed the picture of God's covenant with them. And lastly, it profaned the covenant of their fathers discussed above because they were being faithless with one another. God's like, guys, are you understanding why I'm not honoring your, your sacrifices? Are you understanding why your sacrifices are unacceptable? Because you're doing this, this very wrong thing. And he goes on in, in verse 15. Did he not make the one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. In this covenant, it's God who makes you one with your wives. Jesus confirms this in Mark 10, 6-9. But at the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God made you one. He desires for your marriage to be strong because strong marriages make strong children. And strong marriages and strong children, they make a strong community. He says, don't willingly throw that away because you're unhappy, bored, unfulfilled, or looking for something better. He cares about the purity of their marriage. Don't, don't, don't marry pagans. And he cares about perseverance in marriage. Stick with it. Stay with the wife of your youth. And he gives them a very practical thing to do in verse 15. Look at the second half of verse 15. You can underline this because you see it twice. If you see something twice, pay attention. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Again, we have this term. So guard yourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless. Guard yourselves. Pay careful attention. In sports terminology, it's keep your head up. Our young daughter's playing basketball. What do you teach when you're dribbling the ball? Keep your head up. Why do you want to keep your head up? So you can see if somebody's coming to steal the ball. It's the same thing in marriage. Keep your head up. So somebody doesn't come along and, and knock you off or distract you or, or, or steal your joy in marriage or your purpose in marriage or your love in, in marriage. When it comes to the mixed messages, culture will, will sell you about marriage. Protect your heart. We need to monitor who is speaking into our lives about our biblical commitments, particularly the covenant we will or have made with our spouse. The world says, this is what the world says about marriage. Marriage is, is important, kind of. It's more important than dating. I mean, they'll probably say something like that. 
But they'll usually say it's just a step after moving in together. If moving in together works out, then you get married, which guys, people who live together before they're married have higher divorce rates. That's not a good way to pursue it. But, but, but when we look at it, that's what culture sells us. It's, it's, it's a bit more serious than dating. And guess what? It's a dissolvable contract if you want it to be. If you're not happy, that is all that matters. And there are counselors, there are people, and there are even church-going people who will tell you that. If you aren't happy, get out, man. It's all about your happiness. You have to guard yourselves from such ideas, thoughts, because God tells us it's a covenant. That requires things like faithfulness, perseverance, grace, and mercy. And if you aren't happy, God says, then get to work. Because there's work to do. And as you do that work, be careful who you give an audience to. I wouldn't go to a car salesman for advice on a medical issue. I wouldn't go, you know, hey, Earl, I got a rash. Check it out. Because chances are Earl knows nothing about dermatology. So why would I go to an unbeliever about a covenant I've made with my wife that God was a witness to? Seek godly counsel. Look to God's word. Take in that which builds up your marriage, not that which breaks it down. If being on social media If being around certain people makes you not want to be married, cut that junk out. And go to people, go to things that'll help you build up your marriage. There's amazing resources out there that if you want, if you want to talk to a pastor, I would love to talk to you about your marriage. Because guess what? Marriage is hard. God made it that way. I don't know if he made it that way. Sin made it that way. God knows our marriages are going to be hard. And he uses that sin to sanctify us and to grow us. And so our marriage has not always been easy. I know your marriage won't always be easy. Nobody in this church's marriage has been easy. And just talk to people. Talk to me. Talk to Greg. Talk to Quinn. Talk to Doug. We'd love to talk to you if you're struggling in your marriage. You do not have to walk that path alone. You do not have to walk that path alone. Fight for the spouse of your youth. I need to say, yes, the New Testament gives some exceptions regarding divorce, sexual infidelity, desertion. That's when an unbeliever, you marry an unbeliever and, and they leave you. But when it comes to things like unhappiness, hard times, disagreements, a loss of affections, or because you want a newer, younger model, or a cleaner, more cultured man, or a pagan that'll pay the bills, when when that is your reasoning, it becomes a major offense. It's offense that God can forgive and redeem. Of course, if you have been divorced, God loves you. He doesn't like divorce, but he loves you. There's forgiveness there. But is it something that he wants us to experience now? Absolutely not. No, he's concerned about you and the community of God. Edward Gibbon wrote The Decline and Fall of the 
Roman Empire. And it's a book he wrote in the 18th century. And so that's in the 1700s he wrote this book. And he gave five reasons as to why the Roman Empire fell. And he claims that the first and foremost reason the Roman Empire fell was rapid divorce within the community. Rapid divorce within the community. The second reason was lifeless, ritualistic Christianity, which are the first two things God has addressed in the book of Malachi. Lifeless, ritualistic, religiosity, and marriage. I think the church should take heed. Guys, if the church will never fail, the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. The church will never go under. God is bigger than any worldly power that seeks to put it under. But individual churches can go under. And if I'm honest, I don't really worry about things outside of of this group of people. I don't, I don't worry about what the government's doing and sanctions and people, uh, you know, getting arrested for their faith and preaching God's word. And um, I, mean, I pray for those people, but, but in America, I don't worry about losing tax exempt status and what that means for the church and will we survive and the public schools are teaching this and they're not teaching this and God's being taken. I do not think those things will, will undermine the church in America. I think the implosion happens from within. And I think it happens when our first and foremost relationship with God is, is hurting. And, and it happens when our second most important relationship with our spouse is struggling. Divorce, being taken away by, by, by others who, who don't profess to love the same God I love. Those sort of things hurt a church community. God wanted Israel to be strong. He wants our community to be strong. And a lot of that depends on the purity and strength of our marriages. So marry men, marry women, you young single people. Marry men and marry women who will direct you to Jesus and not distract you from Jesus. Make that commitment to yourselves. Marry you someone who loves Jesus. And you don't need to get onto eHarmony to find that person. Just run your race, man. Run your race with your eyes fixed on God. And one day you'll look over and you'll, you'll see a nice looking person running the race as well. And you'll be like, hey, we should run this race together so we can encourage each other. And if you're married, stay married. Fight for, fight for your marriages. Persevere and do this in light of the gospel. Israel was seduced by other people who worshiped other gods, but Jesus remained faithful to God, to the God of the covenant. In the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom. We are his bride, the church, and he loved his bride, pursued his bride all the way to the cross, even though we were unfaithful to him. While we were still sinners, Christ came after us, And he died for us so that we could be saved and know him forever. And both of these, he is our example of perseverance and sacrificial love. He's our example of marriage fidelity and faithfulness. In addition, that same Jesus lives in each and every one of us, empowering us to marriage fidelity and faithfulness. Let's pray.